Welcome back to Heterodox Out Loud, a podcast that brings some of the best of our blogs in audio. I'm Zach Rausch. Today, a holiday special with blogs from Jonathan Haidt, Eric Smith, Angel Parham, and David Diener. Stay with us. We're living in a difficult time, a time of pandemic. Our nation is increasingly polarized and our campuses and classrooms are plagued with distrust and fear. But here at Heterodox Academy, we seek to build up that which is good and decidedly useful. As we enjoy the holiday season and move into 2022, we're sharing three blogs that we hope will motivate and inspire, ease divisions, and lead us to think in new and unexpected ways. Our first blog is called True Diversity Requires Generosity of Spirit and was written by HXA co-founder and social psychologist Jonathan Haidt in 2015. Diversity is inherently divisive. In a classic social psychology experiment, Henri Tajfel created artificial groups by randomly telling some people that they had overestimated the number of dots on a page while others were told that they were underestimators. Without even talking to each other, people later favored the members of their group. So how easy is it going to be to create a mutually trusting and tolerant society on America's college campuses when those colleges are actively seeking out people who differ by race, nationality, and class? And what if colleges never start seeking out viewpoint diversity as we advocate on this site? The answer is that diversity is hard. And one reason it's so hard is that campus diversity programs rarely begin by extolling the essential precondition for tolerance, generosity of spirit. Social life always contains misunderstandings. Diversity multiplies them by 10. Modern social media multiplies them by 10 again. Training students to react to microaggressions, which are small and often unintentional slights, multiplies the misunderstandings still further. In November of 2015, we witnessed one of the most shocking cases of this lack of generosity at Claremont McKenna College in California. The Dean of Students resigned in response to massive student protests. What was the Dean's offense? A Latina student had written an essay in an online journal saying that she did not feel that she belonged at CMC. She did not use the word mold herself, but her letter suggested the concept of a template or normative standard. Here's the quote. Our campus climate and institutional culture are primarily grounded in Western, white, cis-heteronormative, upper-to-upper-middle-class values. End quote. In response to this letter, the dean of students, Mary Spellman, reached out to her. Here is the full text of Spellman's now infamous email. Quote, Lisette, thanks for writing and sharing this article with me. We have a lot to do as a college and a community. Would you be willing to talk to me about these issues? They are important to me and the Dean of Students staff, and we are working on how we can better serve students, especially those that don't fit our CMC mold. End quote. The student interpreted Dean Spellman's email in the least generous way possible. She was offended by Dean Spellman's use of the word mold, and she posted the email on Facebook. The response was explosive. 
protests, hunger strikers, demands for mandatory faculty sensitivity training, and demands that Dean Spellman apologize and resign, which she did. You can watch students taunting Dean Spellman on YouTube. The section beginning at 41 minutes is particularly cruel. A member of the crowd condemns Dean Spellman for falling asleep during the Inquisition, when it is clear from the rest of the video that the poor woman was only closing her eyes because she was struggling to hold back her tears. Philosophers often advocate what they call the principle of charity. It means that in any discussion, we interpret other people's statements in the way that makes their argument strongest, not weakest. We give them the benefit of the doubt rather than trying to twist their words to support the ugliest possible implications, as we see happening in many of the ongoing campus crises. So I would like to propose a plan for restoring peace on campus and helping those who want to reform campus life to do so effectively. Let us all read Dale Carnegie's classic work, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Carnegie shows us exactly how to get along with those who differ from us and how to change their minds. Don't attack people. Be more indirect and psychologically skillful. Try to see things honestly from their point of view and acknowledge what they're doing right before you say what you'd like them to change. Appeal to nobler motives. And after Carnegie, here's the advanced credit reading list. Jesus's Sermon on the Mount, such as, Why do you see the speck in your neighbor's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Buddha's Dhammapada, such as, It is easy to see the faults of others, but difficult to see one's own faults and a selection of verses from all the world's wisdom literature passed down to us to warn us of our tendency to be mean-spirited, vindictive, and hypocritical. Make these tolerance-promoting works the required summer reading list for all incoming students, faculty, and administrators. At present, college summer reading lists focus on social justice concerns, which seem likely to have the opposite effect from reading for generosity of spirit. Diversity is inherently divisive. It takes work to reap its benefits. And as we argue here at Heterodox Academy, the most valuable kind of diversity of all is also the most divisive, viewpoint diversity. Without generosity of spirit and a dash of humility, the diversity project, indeed the American project, is doomed to fail. Just look at Congress. Let us all step back, press the reset button, and do some reading that may help us to live together in peace, generosity, and diversity. Jonathan Haidt, reading his blog, True Diversity Requires Generosity of Spirit. Our next blog, written by Eric Smith, professor of rhetoric at York College, extends John's essay and looks at ways we can reduce animosity across political and social divides, His blog is A Rhetoric of Common Values. Although the 2020 presidential election is behind us, the contentiousness that accompanied its arrival persists. However, with nowhere to go but forward, Americans would do well to figure out how to coexist. This is a tall order. Bipartisan communication is a difficult but necessary aspect of democracy. Put simply, to reunite America, We must be able to talk across the divide. I will not be the first or last to say that bipartisan dialogue is imperative to America's unification. However, 
Talking to perceived enemies can induce discomfort or even disgust most would rather avoid. Although our discomfort may stem from what we think we know about those with whom we disagree, discovering admirable qualities we didn't know about them might open the door to mutual understanding. In the process, we may discover similarities where we previously only saw differences. To discover these similarities and our common values, we would do well to understand rhetorical concepts like discourse and the values, beliefs, and attitudes that go with them. First, on discourse. As a rhetorician who studies the unifying potential of language, I see the first step toward recognizing common values as the acknowledgement of the social linguistic concept of discourse, spelled with a capital D, to distinguish it from more common understandings of discourse as conversation. Discourses are described by linguist James G. in Literacy, Discourse, and Linguistics as, quote, ways of being in the world or forms of life which integrate words, acts, values, beliefs, attitudes, social identities, as well as gestures, glances, body position, and clothes, end quote. For example, the discourse of traditional academia, which involves an emphasis on objectivity, precision, formal argument, and an acknowledgement of counterarguments may not go over well in a dive bar, in which the discourse not only de-emphasizes such aspects, but frowns upon the pulling of rank. For example, my earlier as a rhetorician statement wouldn't fly. One would do well to know the preferred discourse of a context before attempting to interact. In addition to their relevance to us as individuals, Discourses can describe the preferences of whole communities. Each of us is born into a discourse that ultimately shapes us into the people we become, providing us with the appropriate social roles that others within the discourse community will recognize and ideally accept. When we do not recognize others' social roles, as in how they fit into the discourse to which the person abides, we see strangers and outsiders. So... What we consider normal, good, or right depends on the discourse in which we are raised. The fact that a person who may seem crazy within the confines of one discourse may be considered quite normal in the confines of another suggests people we deem abnormal may just be abiding by a different normal from the one we prefer. Recognizing the existence of different discourses is important but insufficient. We must work to find similarities across those differences. So let's look at values, beliefs, and attitudes. Based on G's definition, a discourse, with a capital D, consists of a set of, quote, values, beliefs, and attitudes, unquote. Those three features may serve as the best bridge between discourses. Often, they share values, beliefs, and attitudes, but differ in the emphases each discourse puts on them. For example, most people, regardless of their respective discourse communities, embrace values like honesty and loyalty, but a discourse may put more emphasis on one than another. For instance, let's say a friend confesses to you that he robbed a bank. If you put more emphasis on loyalty, you will keep your friend's secret and hope that he does not get caught. However, if you put more emphasis on honesty, you may feel obligated to report your friend to the authorities. Both values are good, 
but they can bump up against each other in certain instances. If we apply this understanding to discourse communities as a whole, we can see how people can interpret the same phenomena differently. Athletes kneeling during the national anthem is appalling to those who embrace what moral foundations theorists would call the values of loyalty and authority, but endearing to those emphasizing values of care and fairness. Both parties may agree that all those values are good, but some are embraced more than others. But so what? Knowing that different discourses exist and that similar values between discourse communities can be emphasized differently doesn't solve the problem of communicative conscientiousness. In order to use these realizations to alleviate societal contentions, we must use our similarities as a foundation for conversation. The philosopher Kenneth Burke used the term identification to describe how to make the best of shared values and promote a sense of commonality. Burke writes that you can persuade a person, quote, only insofar as you can talk his language by speech, gesture, tonality, order, image, attitude, idea, identifying your ways with his, unquote. Put simply, the more one can highlight shared interests, the more likely one is to dialogue effectively. How might this look? Activist Jonathan Smucker suggests utilizing the concept of narrative insurgency, a tactic based on, quote, points of connection, i.e., common ground between their belief system and yours, unquote. This is to say, we should do our best to investigate another's discourse for commonalities and use those commonalities as starting points for communication. In his book, Hegemony How-To, A Roadmap for Radicals, Smucker provides an example of narrative insurgency involving an environmental conservationist speaking to a climate change denier who cited creationism as his primary argument. Quote, when speaking to creationists about environmental issues, for example, an effective point of entry might be to emphasize humanity's biblical mandate to care for God's creation. Unquote. This emphasis on common ground instead of disagreement may develop a level of empathy that transcends debate and better ensures dialogue. The possible recognition of one's values in the discourse of others, especially others once deemed as antagonists, is an ideal first step in creative generative dialogue. As long as we can refrain from having it devolve into accusations of hypocrisy, which in this scenario could sound something like, you are a Christian, yet you don't even know your Bible? The narrative insurgency tactic has potential. To sum up, discourse shapes who we are and how we see the world. We can find shared values within our respective discourses and use them as a starting point for dialogue. All this being said, some caveats are in order. First, many people belong to more than one discourse community. For example, someone could belong to a mixed martial arts club and a pacifist club at the same time. Two seemingly disparate groups. What's more, context will determine which discourse community is relevant at a given time. We must not judge the pacifist as a mixed martial artist while he participates in nonviolent protests. Second, I want to be clear that promoting a mode of communication based on commonalities does not mean we should try to ignore differences. Differences enhance diversity, which, in turn, enhances our ability to innovate and move forward in productive ways. Approaching a problem from a range of perspectives provides more viewpoints to choose from or even synthesize 
therefore increasing the possibility of finding effective solutions. Ultimately, our goal should be to advance society in ways beneficial to all. Communication is imperative to such goals, and acknowledging shared values can help put us on the right track. This will not be easy, but it doesn't really have to be. Eric Smith reading his blog, A Rhetoric of Common Values. Our third offering is by David Diener and Angel Parham. Their recently published holiday blog is called How Our Fraught History Can Still Be the Source of Unity. David is the headmaster of Hillsdale College, and Angel is an associate professor of sociology at the University of Virginia. Here's what they wrote. Trouble in the time of Thanksgiving. How our fraught history can still be a source of unity. American history is rooted in real struggles. Settlers and the Native Americans. Free people and the enslaved. Majorities and minorities. Too often, our two prominent fall holidays, Columbus Day, Indigenous Peoples Day, and Thanksgiving, cause these fissures to break wide open rather than bind us closer together. When these commemorations spark polarization, however, it is often because we fail to ask a fundamental question. What is the purpose of teaching and celebrating history? We shouldn't study history or observe historical events to open old wounds or unearth the sins of our fathers. Rather, we should view these holidays, and history more generally, with open minds as a series of lessons on human nature and as a guidebook for cultivating virtue and wisdom. If we learn to approach our history from this perspective, we might find it can be a catalyst for unity rather than an ongoing source of division. As we consider relations between Native Americans and European settlers during this season, the troubled founding of Dartmouth College holds a wealth of lessons for us. In the popular version, Eliezer Wheelock founded the college in 1769 with the fundraising help of Minister Sampson Ockham, a Native American from the Mohegan Nation. Less widely known, however, is how Wheelock took advantage of Ockham. On July 23, 1771, Ockham penned a letter detailing his plight. He wrote that Wheelock had asked him to promote his cause of erecting a school for Native Americans, where there was a most glorious prospect of spreading the gospel to the furtherest savage nations in the wilderness. Ockham explained how he cheerfully ventured my body and soul, left my country, my poor young family, all my friends and relations, to sail over the boisterous seas of England to help forward your school. Not only was the journey and absence from those he loved difficult, Ockham described how, as a Native American, he became a gazing stock, yea, even a laughing stock in strange countries. Still, the English gave money for the college because we told them that there were so many missionaries and so many schoolmasters already sent out, and a greater number would soon follow. Ockham's friend tried to warn him before he left. You have been a fine tool to get money for them, but when you get home, they won't regard you. They'll set you adrift. And in the end, 
Occam saw he was, just as his friend predicted, used as Indian bait to collect more money than donors would have given if told the truth. Occam details, your, Wheelock, having so many white scholars and so few or no Indian scholars gives me great discouragement. I verily thought once that your institution was intended purely for the poor Indians. Wheelock deceived Occam, not only leaving him without a college for his Native American brethren, but also betraying their friendship and undermining any sense of partnership between white settlers and Native Americans. And in this way, the story of Wheelock and Occam is not redemptive. But nor should this historical event be viewed simply as another link on a chain of continual white oppressions. If we merely study Occam's story through today's lens of injustice, we miss the opportunity to learn about empowerment, salvation, and the strength of the human spirit. After all, history holds lessons if we are prepared with intellectual humility to learn them. As the English Benedictine monk Bede wrote, if history records good things of good men, the thoughtful hearer is encouraged to imitate what is good. Or, if it records evil of wicked men, the reader is encouraged to avoid all that is sinful and perverse. This medieval perspective on history looked beyond the litany of historical facts to the moral implications of the lesson. As we consider stories like that of Wheelock and Occam, we would be wise to learn from Bede's ability to look above the string of events and instead engage with both the good and the bad, the inconsistencies and the imperfections of our history. As professors, this is our responsibility to students. Despite the diversity of our geography, experiences, even race, we both teach students in the classical model, helping them heed the wisdom of Bede and approach history with an open mind as a means to cultivate knowledge, develop character, and instill moral values. In the classical tradition, stories like Occam and Wheelock's can't be swept under the rug as if they were insignificant to larger narratives. But by the same token, we must not reduce these two men to mere caricatures of opposing groups. In a spirit of open debate and free inquiry, we can help students draw out personal lessons. What were blind spots Wheelock had then versus blind spots we may have today? that people 200 years from now will criticize us for? Or is it possible Wheelock didn't have a blind spot at all? Was he simply embedded in a system of injustice he couldn't extricate himself from? What about Occam? How did he allow his experience of betrayal to define him? After all, despite being deceived by his friend, Occam resolved not to be defeated. Upon returning from England, Occam went home to his Mohegan people, persisted in ministerial work, and helped to organize the Christian Indians of New England and Long Island into a new tribe in upstate New York. When we study history with an eye toward virtue and wisdom, we find the past is full of complexity. Some episodes, like the betrayal of Occam by Wheelock, are clearly wrong. Others are a mix of good and bad. Contending with this nuance is critical, 
as it prevents us from wholly vilifying or apothesizing historical figures, actions, or events. And it teaches our students to judge immoral behavior of the past without being self-righteous, without losing sight of our own fallibility. What's more, doing so allows us to commemorate significant historical moments like Columbus Day or Thanksgiving without lapsing into a cynicism that threatens to disintegrate the fragile bonds holding us together, or into a willful blindness that overlooks the work and understanding needed to strengthen those bonds. Few confronted this task more gracefully than the 18th and 19th century black intellectuals who struggled to reconcile our nation's foundational contradiction, the evil reality of slavery and the ideals of liberty delineated in our Constitution. Perhaps the most eloquent of these luminaries was Frederick Douglass. In 1847, a decade after escaping from slavery, Douglass stated, I have no love for America, and argued that the Constitution is a pro-slavery document. Later, however, he found that subsequent experience and reading led him to change course. Douglas came to believe that the Constitution, when read and implemented correctly, was a vehicle for liberty. He came to embrace the paradoxes of human existence and cherish the goodness of the American experiment, while acknowledging that evils of the past and present still needed to be redressed. Empowered by this wisdom, he became a great leader in the fight for the freedom and empowerment of his people. This Thanksgiving, as we consider how our nation remembers the pilgrims' first harvest with Native Americans, we must ask ourselves and our students, are we willing to do the same as Douglas? Can we listen humbly to opposing arguments? Can we engage with opinions different from our own? Will we approach history not as a bludgeon to win a debate, but as a means to better understand others' experiences and help shape our souls? History uncovers what is common in every human experience, the realities of love and hate, justice and injustice, fidelity and betrayal. It is through the recognition of and learning from these commonalities that the study of our history is fundamentally a uniting enterprise. That is, if we choose to learn its lessons. Stina Nielsen reading David Diener's and Angel Parham's blog, How Our Fraught History Can Still Be the Source of Unity. The writings of Jonathan Haidt Eric Smith, David Diener, and Angel Parham on Heterodox Out Loud. Stay up to date with Heterodox Academy by visiting heterodoxacademy.org. Subscribe and download Heterodox Out Loud on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. Davies Content produced this show. A big shout out to Kara Boyer on the communications team. I'm Zach Rausch. See you next year.